ready to explore the extraordinary world of tech. Welcome to the XTech Podcast, where we connect you with the sharpest minds and leading voices in the global tech community. Join us as we cut through the complexity to give you a clear picture of the ideas, innovations, and insight that are shaping our future. Hello, and welcome to the X Tech Podcast by Fox Agency. I'm your host, Debbie Forster, MBE. I'm the CEO at the Tech Talent Charter and an advocate and campaigner for diversity, inclusion, and innovation in the tech industry. Today, I am delighted. We're joined by Anne Wien. She is the co-founder and CEO of NIMI Collectibles. Thanks for joining us, Anne. Hi, Debbie. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. Now, and what we try and do in the podcast is everybody seems to have a different pathway into tech. Some people are born with a laptop and a keyboard in hand tapping away. Others of us have squiggly careers where we find ourselves in tech. Can you walk me through from when you were little, how did you get into tech? Yeah, it's definitely a, an interesting question. I, I grew up in Vietnam in the in the 90s, and I definitely feel that technology was this you know, shiny, exciting thing that I really got myself interested in at an early age, but definitely as a consumer. And I was really an early adopter of, of different types of uh, tech tools. And what I noticed that was interesting was that that period of time, the 90s in Vietnam, when the country started to open up, is a very interesting period to observe innovation and technology because the country was definitely behind the West, but things were happening really quickly and very fast. And what was really exciting was the fact that in some aspects of everyday life, Vietnam and developing countries essentially leapfrogged the development in the West where, you know, in many cases, we we may have skipped, you know, traditional banking and went straight to mobile banking. And in many ways, you know, we didn't really use a landline as much. Everyone had mobile phone, you know, as the first thing that they they got exposed to when when they're a teenager. So that's definitely an interesting time. Um, and then because I was always thinking about that from a consumer standpoint, I was always interested in the problems that technology can solve. And when I went to the US um, for my education and then moved to London after a few years of working in the US, I continue to have that mindset in thinking about what problems are we solving with tech and and what what might be non-problems that uh, that technology <laughs> seems to try to solve that are not, uh, are not necessary. So it definitely has been an interesting kind of thought process throughout most of my life. And I think that's a, I think it's a powerful journey. And I think ben, tech benefits both from what I call the natural geeks that are so excited about what tech can do, but our problem solvers that want to think through what it should do, what it shouldn't do, and keep that focus on problem solving, where organizations and companies and products bring those together. You get some, you get some powerful pieces. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me about Nimi Collectibles. So you, you were a tech consumer. You were liking the problem solving. How did that turn into yeah. becoming a co-founder, becoming a CEO of something like this? You definitely teed up really well for me because it is very much about being an obsessive problem solver that define probably the first, you know, 
12, 15 years of my career where I was in consulting. I was working on solving problems in many different spaces and, and industries, primarily financial problems. And then through COVID, I became really interested in reading a lot more about the underlying problems within the arts and public sectors around cultural and, and art institutions. And that really got me really curious to understand what are the underlying financial sustainability questions around the arts and museums in particular. So I started reading a lot of news through COVID times around really the, the struggles that museums and public institutions in the arts um, were facing. And um, it is very much through that mindset of here's an interesting problem that is very much aligned with my interests in the arts as a as a hobby as a personal interest um let's see how i can use my problem solving hat to to solve this and that journey ultimately led to many conversations with museum directors across the us and europe and i was really interviewing them purely in my learning tour to just understand what's going on and how can i apply um the the private sector hat to, to understand the problem better. And that really led me to, um, to, to the creation of, um, of NIMI of, along a few, a few friends who became my co-founders. So what NIMI does is really to create a platform that connects museums and cultural institutions with what we refer to as the next generation of patrons. So essentially millennials between 25 and 45 and really empower them and engage them into a really different mindset in terms of thinking about art engagement. So with that, we really wanted to democratize access to art philanthropy. So it is not just about, you know, getting access in terms of walking through the galleries for free, but it is rather about having an agency to think that, to think about the responsibility of your generation, of our generation, to um, to actually become a patron of the arts. Um, so that's where we are, um, very much thinking about um, how do we solve this fundamental problem of over-reliance on, um, you know, government funding as well as private and major donors? Um, and how do we really um, empower the mass and, and the public um, to stand behind the arts and, and back um, many of the, of the exciting cultural institutions that we have in a, in a much, much more engaging way? And we arrive at, you know, tech as the solution for that, um, after we kind of gone through that that journey of understanding the problem, understanding the the space um, among both consumers and um, and and cultural institutions. Well, that's okay. there's so much about that I get excited about because one, the, you know, Winston Churchill has that saying: "Never waste a good crisis." So while COVID was going on and other people were making learning to make sourdough, I love that you were grappling with something, and we all watched all the arts institutions and they, they weren't in a great place beforehand, were they? Yeah. And then COVID just drove them to near extinction. Yeah. And the idea that you'd then bring in everything, you know, from you in the nineties, the millennials seeing tech differently and how they can see institutions. But what I also love is there's a, there's a lot of entrepreneurs in this space that have that idea, see the problem and then think they know enough. So your listening tour is really powerful. So talk me through, First of all, how that went, that listening tour, and when we think of these cultural institutions, because these are not usually the cutting edge of technology and breaking into new ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. How did you engage them? Yeah, so um, I started with... Um 
very much an open mind. Um, I was just a, uh, very, very curious, um, you know, person. And, uh, so I reached out to, I started first with my, um, undergraduate alumni network and I just went through the directory and just picked out people who work in cultural sectors and museums. And luckily many of them actually became senior, um, you know, leadership in, uh, museums in the U S um, some of them on, on, on this side of, um, of the pond, um, and it was just an open question. At first, I just reached out to a bunch of people and asked, would you be open to, to our virtual coffee chat? And I think to your point, because everyone was stuck at home with COVID, people are definitely more interested in uh, entertaining a random request from a, from a curious <laughs> person. Um, and, uh, and that really started the, the journey. So it was really from one person to the next people introduced me to, to their friends. And they would, after a 30 minute conversation, they were like, Oh, you should talk to so and so. So over that period of a couple months, this was early 2022, I had more of that mapping of what are the perspectives from directors of museums to director of advancement and development. So people who are thinking about the fundraising side to um, marketing, to the curatorial perspective. And I recognized through that process that there are just so much silos. And it shouldn't be a surprise uh, because silos exist in any organizations, in any sector. And of course, they would exist in, um, in, in the arts and in the public sector. And maybe even more so precisely to your point, because um, it has been perceived as an, a, a space that has um, kind of lacked that sense of innovation and, and um, you know, application of, of technology. Um, so from the recognition that there were so much silos, I understood at a deeper level that um, the revenue and financial challenges are dealt with completely separately from the engagement challenge. So they're owned by two separate people. They have completely different backgrounds, right? They have different time scale of how they think about their problems. Um, on one hand, they may be thinking about the next 10 years. And then on the other hand, they may be thinking about, you know, the next exhibition, right? Like in the next three months and how do we bring more people through the door? Um, so that's definitely one that I recognize where it's really just a great example of how, you know, large organizations and complex organizations become. And uh, that was what was very motivating for me as, as, a, as someone who's, you know, looking to solve a, a problem. And I think that's something to think about, you know, because I'm, I'm always listening and trying to think, okay, what can the audience learn from this? And I think when we are designing products or services, we think about talking to our stakeholders, but sometimes we see our stakeholders as one homogenous group. Maybe sometimes what we should be doing within tech is to think about when we're looking at a stakeholder, when we're looking at client bases, are there even silos in there that tech could break down? Because that's a great solution. So, okay, so were there any big barriers beyond the silos with the with the institutions that you that you encountered? There's definitely a sense of hesitation, you know, adopt newer ideas. Um, and um, certainly there's a big institutional inertia or even, you know, sector inertia because it has always been a, a, a slower moving space. Things are very much 
are happening the way that they have been happening for for a long time. Probably since the Renaissance. Probably arts and arts institutions have relied on right. on individual rich patient patrons since probably since the Renaissance. Right. Yeah, it's a long would, thing to overcome. I, I would agree. I, I would agree. And um, and and so I think there is naturally that resistance to change, um, and that's very understandable. And understandable. And there's also a high level of risk aversion for for own good reason, given that they are very public facing. They are, um, in many cases, the the shepherds um, of you know cultural movements and, um, and 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 what people look up to as an example. So, so to navigate more of that sense of inertia, um, we recognize very early on that we need to establish ourselves as a partner and a thought leader in in the space not because we think we could come in from the outside and and know better but is because we are engaging with all the right conversations and the right people who may not normally talk to each other so um i think having that fresh perspective of coming in and being very humble and open mind in our conversations and in engaging with different stakeholders um, has definitely been the 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 way um, that we've been able to to establish our voice. And then, because you're appealing to that younger group, is that what guided you to NFTs? I mean, I'm really I want to get into this why NFTs because there was such a furore at the start. And then until I started talking to you, I had yet to find something that really compelled me that this is sticky, this is going to work. So walk me through how with your your younger target audience, the democratizing, how did NFTs enter into that discussion? Yeah. So um, interesting, because as you recall, even in the way that I explained what Nimi does, NFT didn't really come up as you know a headliner. It is precisely because we think of NFT and, and blockchain technology in general as a tool and an enabler. So what we wanted to enable is that sense of ownership of your visitors' engagement with the museums. So instead of just being a guest and a visitor that, you know, walks through the galleries and leaves, we wanted to have more of that ongoing relationship that's started by a sense of ownership of an experience and a sense of ownership of, of their responsibility and actually their love of the of the collection and the works in in the building. So the the model that we propose that has been kind of very well received by by institutions that we've we've worked with and then talked to is essentially turning the user journey of you know looking at the the, the buildings and the artworks in the building to now actually knowing that they can collect something that's coming from the museum as a memento of that experience, but also now the the digital collectibles that they have would also allow them to partake in future opportunities for further engagement. Because um, given that you collect this particular piece of work from the institution, there is that willingness to then Yes, I would be interested in, you know, going to a tour with a curators. Yes, I would be interested in a happy hour event that now includes people that are also interested in collecting this style of art or 
the arts from the museum uh, alongside me. And I have made that commitment by becoming a collector in the first place and taking that very baby step towards a journey of becoming patron rather than the more transactional model that exists currently in museums when we think about membership. Membership adoption is a very transactional decision. Consumers often think about how many times they go a year to make it worthwhile. And then if it's a year with a massive like blockbuster exhibition, then they may sign up for a membership and then not renew it next year because there isn't something that they would be interested in anymore. So we want to turn that transactional relationship into more of that emotive emotional relationship where you love something in the building, you can take a piece of it home, and you now start the journey of engaging in a different way. So that's really the idea behind the collecting behavior that we wanted to encourage and empower to demonstrate that sense of interest in engagement. And NFT um, currently is a technology that enables that. It's gotten a lot more energy efficient and cost efficient to produce and actually even more so than your coffee table books that you may never read. You pick up a a book and you may never read and you walk out of the door and the museum has no further way to engage with you again. So that's really the idea behind what we, what we've come up with, with the, with the NIMI model. And I, I was talking to my daughter about this, who is your target audience, right? So she's 26, et cetera. And she loved that idea, you know, because I think you were doing some things with Klimt that she liked and she was saying, and because she travels, she's a digital nomad. And so why would she have a coffee book? or something it's greener it's easier that she has that that and going on and I love that you weren't just looking at what we would consider um you know arts institutions just like museums you did something with the Saget Festival which again my daughter's been to so her eyes lit up so it was it's interesting because it's taking you into very different realms but engaging an audience that must be Mm -hmm. just over, you know, gold dust from museums' perspective for their own sustainability moving forward. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is very much that sense of empowerment because what we think about is also for museums and festivals and cultural institutions to have an effective way to segment the audience. If you have, you know, let's say 500,000 people that are your, you know, visitors a year and how do you give people a very easy way to demonstrate that they're the super fans they love it so much that they want it to be you know in the inner circle that they not because they have you know thousands of dollars to donate but they are willing to spend a few hundred pounds you know like to really think about collecting things from from the collection or becoming a super fan at the festival because they really wanted to demonstrate that that commitment so i think it is very much coming from the same desire to enable users and members and um, visitors to have that deeper level of engagement and would be rewarded for their deeper level of of loyalty and engagement um, through interesting experiences and activities that, that continue to further that relationship. And I think, you know, we talk a lot about collectors and aficionados and patrons, but you're bringing that into the 21st century. I think, you know, I'd, I'd love to call myself a, su- a super fan of art and to think about it in that way is super. So I, you know, it's, it's something I'd really encourage the, the listeners to have a look at your website. And I want to keep watching that and to see, because as you said, the other thing I really like about it with your focus on 
solving a problem, the tool you're currently holding is a nice loose grip. So you're not, you know, you're not completely emotionally entangled into that. And that keeps you nimble and agile. And I think that's important when we're in tech. If we, what we need to have is a deep, deep understanding of the problem. And then an agile grip on the tools we use to solve it. Because if we're getting tech right, that tool's going to charge. So mm-hmm. love that, love that, love that. Want to, want to find out more about it. Yeah. And, and I think to your point, that deeper understanding of the problem is something that we also need to do and continue to maintain for the, on the consumer side as well, since ultimately we're B2B2C business. So on the consumer side, the needs and desires to engage in art are quite complex. And the interesting part that I notice a lot is oftentimes museums or cultural institutions are not able to truly address the different personas of consumers because we've come from you know decades of thinking of equal access as the goal where it is about something that is accessible for everyone which means that it may not be the best solution for any anyone group in particular because the average of you and me may not be a real person Right. So, uh, so I think like that's really interesting and museums are starting to think about it m- much more differently in recent years in terms of how do they appeal to the learners? How do they appeal to what we call the social butterflies? People who actually would love to meet one another and network with one another. So Nimi actually is able to fill that gap very well because we naturally attract people that really want to put themselves out there and want to go and meet more people who are lovers of arts and lover of museums and like you, the, the, the art super fans. And that's really where the value lies. And most of those people have talked about how they can't possibly be members of multiple museums. They would love to support multiple museums, but there isn't a natural way for them to do that. True. So that's really interesting that there is also very new consumer space problems that we learn as we as we get on onto this journey and we continue to see a lot of interesting ways to be a matchmakers between the two. <laughs> love that. Absolutely love that. And again, that's important for our audience to always remind us to see those cl- customers in a really differentiated way. And sometimes that means it takes taking stakeholders on that view as well. But that that adaptability is fantastic. Super. Okay. So we, we also like to let, um, guests have a chance to, to stare at the horizon a bit and, and have a moan and have a moment to, 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 um, celebrate. So thinking about tech in general, what's coming up on the horizon? Is there anything that's frustrating you at the moment or worrying you? I would love for us to see more problem obsessed, um, tech entrepreneurs rather than tech obsessed um, tech entrepreneurs. And I think the frustrating part, which is really natural in, you know, the, in an environment where there's just so much technology innovation, is that perhaps we don't put enough emphasis and attention to the core underlying problems that those innovations can solve. So I think we may have more of that general trend of applying or bringing tech in for its own sake that's sometimes you know natural that people have to go through that phase and then they realize that no they don't need those tools and those extra fancy shiny things so for example in the 
in many cases with COVID, there is such an accelerated adoption of virtual technology that enables, you know, remote work. And in the space that I'm most invested in lately in the in the cultural space, there is endless amount of virtual content, the virtual tours, virtual talks, own kind of virtual events and 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 everything in between that are free for the public. But I actually think there is very little me- measurement on the level of successful engagement and outreach and the target audience for those types of of programming. So I think generally it tends to be a bandwagon that people jump on and not having a very clear reason why. And I think now we ha- we have that trend too with AI. And I certainly think that is a very, very powerful innovation. But I would love to see more of that intentional adoption, intentional you know, articulation of the problems that we are looking to solve with, uh, with a very powerful tool. I, and I couldn't agree more. I, I, I found... In so many different companies and looking at products and talking to entrepreneurs, and you can just get lost down the rabbit hole. And that powerful question of going back to, okay, what exactly is the problem we're trying to solve? Not what are we trying to do? What is the problem we're trying to solve? Because it, it's, what are we doing? What are we building? How are we iterating? What's the problem? And then, because if you really understand that problem, then you should be able to measure the success. And like you say, COVID drove a lot of it and AI is going to do a lot of that of, you know, if we build it, we can come. And if we build it, we should build it. It's, I love the thought and I've not heard it put that way. Bring back that intentionality, mm-hmm. that thoughtful approach to, to what is the problem. Super. Okay. But on a, a positive thing, is there, is there anything that excites you about tech? Yeah, I think we're definitely living in a very exciting moment where at the advent of you know, innovation and technology that disrupts other foundational technology that came about not long ago, right? So we, we continue to just have a much faster pace of innovation that I think significantly reduced the, the timeline of new tech and new innovation coming out. So only a few years ago, we probably tend to see like an 18 to 24 month cycle of technology and, and, and new trends. And now that's probably reduced to six months timeframe where every six months things would look very different if you, um, go on a hiatus and like unpluck yourself for six months and you come back and you probably would be very, very, very surprised at the ways that everything is, is, is working and, and the world evolves around. So I think very much excited about the pace of innovation and really excited about the ways that is a lot more approachable for entrepreneurs to step in. And even given the the downturn and, you know, the, 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 the softer market environment, we do see that it's a great time to start a, a business because you are able to accelerate and build in a very lean way, given the, the amount of technology enablement that exists. I'm not mourning the loss of unicorns. I'm not sure the world needed so much um, unicorn mania. Mm. I think sometimes lean times force us to do it again, not just because we can, but because there's a problem. And there's a lot to be said for bootstrapping and and doing things in a a really careful way. So Yeah. And I definitely think that it's always, there's always two two sides to a situation, right? There's good news and bad news. There are a lot of companies that you know, raise significant funds and on a very crazy valuation in, in 2021. 
it's actually quite a tough spot for them to be in to kind of grow up that way like when you kind of grow up with so much abundance you didn't have to force yourself to think about the problems and the solution that you have in a more critical way and it may be a lot harder for you now to you know face a tougher environment so i do think there's always that aspect of having the right uh, constraints and, and challenges early on that you would have to overcome to to truly train yourself and, and culturally to 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 build a business um in in the right way and that's what we'll remind ourselves when times are hard is is this this will make us stronger one day so yes. <laughs> And is there anything that is inspiring you right now that you're listening to, that you're watching, that you're reading, that you'd recommend to our audience? I listen to podcasts a lot <laughs> on my commute. So uh, I, the one that I continue to always go back to is How I Built This by Guy Ross on NPR. And it's just stories of entrepreneurs and some businesses or sectors that don't have any immediate or on the surface level any common um you know factors or similarities to to what i'm working on but i always love an entrepreneur story and i always love the lessons that you learn and really sometimes i actually just think about on my day to day and thinking about the key the big the big decisions that we need to make and the big milestones and i keep thinking what would i say in an eventual podcast down the line about <laughs> Mimi, um, you know, uh, when we become that unicorn um, and what are the key moments, what are the key, um, you know, like really like big bets that we make that um, we would only ever know, you know, the verdict would still be out until the day that we can prove um, one way or another. So it's, it's, it's I definitely one to, <laughs> to, to listen to. Uh, Excellent. Yeah. And, and we can say that this will be the before and that podcast when you're on will be the after and you can remember back when you thought that. Yes. Oh, that's fantastic. So listen, thank you so much, Anne, for joining me on the, this episode of X-Tech. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you're a tech innovator and would like to appear as a guest on the show, email us now at xtech at fox.agency. And finally... Thank you to the team of experts at Fox Agency who make this podcast happen. I'm Debbie Forster, and you've been listening to the X-Tech Podcast. Keep exploring the world of tech. Subscribe to our podcast and never miss an episode. To discover more opportunities for global B2B tech brands, visit fox.agency today.